Week 62 of the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. Another week with the country on fire and a president that doesn't even know how to take an easy lift to put it part of it out. Let's start the show. We are now the defenders of the stronghold of democracy and of equal opportunity. You and I as citizens have the obligation to shape the debates of our time, not only with the votes we cast, but with the voices we lift. The people are looking for honest answers, not easy answers. The very word secrecy is repugnant. Clear leadership. And we are as a people. Not false claims and evasiveness and politics as usual. Opposed to secret society. But ours was a nation of the ballot, not the bullet. And a secret procedure. As a people, we cannot afford to let any group of citizens or any individual citizens live or labor under conditions which are injurious to the commonwealth. Black, white, Latino, Asian, Native American, young, old, gay, straight, men, women, folks with disabilities, all pledging allegiance under the same proud flag to this big, bold country that we love. That's what I see. That's the America I know. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. There is nothing wrong with America that cannot be cured by what is right with America. Great guest today, especially for this moment. Toure joins me. And, you know, it's funny. One of the things he said during that interview, which I've been thinking about all weekend, obviously. I I taped the interview on my radio show last week on Thursday night. And we were, of course, talking about Black Lives Matter and defund the police and George Floyd and everything that's going around on around that across the country, the protests, etc. And really, you know, the policy, how are we going to change things? How are we going to make things better? And he said to me, it's not going to be long before there's another one just like this that gets us all outraged. And I don't think things will be better before that. And, you know, who would have thought that just a couple days later, on Saturday night, somebody's sleeping in his car in a Wendy's, and he dies for that. That's the crime he died for. Now, I get it. A lot of people are going to tell you that that guy struggled with the police, took the cop's taser. All those things are bad. None of those things are worth dying for. He was running away when the cop shot him in the back. And then the cop said, I got him. I, you know, I don't know how much more of this we can take in this country and have anybody doubt that there needs to be serious changes in the way people behave. You know, you think about Dylan Roof. I don't know if you remember him. He's the guy who walked into a church in South Carolina and killed everybody there. Police caught him. They didn't blow his head off. Why? Because he's a white guy? I mean, it is it is disturbing. It should be disturbing to you. It's disturbing to me. It's disturbing that we have a president that doesn't have any clue how to lower the temperature. He was given a gift late last week when military leaders said 
let's take the Confederate soldier names off of our military bases, like Fort Bragg and Fort Hood. That would have been the easiest thing for him to do. He would have gotten far too much praise for doing that. Let me be clear. You'd hear Chuck Todd and and others just going gaga over the president's brave move. I mean, I don't even want to think about the accolades, the undeserving accolades he would have gotten. And yes, he could have said, I did it, and Joe Biden and Barack Obama didn't do it. It would have been a great political win for him. But he didn't do it. He, he, couldn't, he, he doesn't want to risk losing the white supremacist vote. I'll be clear. He doesn't want to risk losing the white supremacist vote. So, look, I, I, you know anybody who's listened to me over the years knows how I feel about the Confederacy. The Confederacy was terrorism. The Confederate States of America might as well have been ISIS. Okay? Robert E. Lee killed more Americans than any general ever. He makes Osama bin Laden look Bush League. When it comes to killing Americans, he killed more Americans. So why would Americans build statues to a man who terrorized Americans? And by the way, what they were fighting for was the right to keep people enslaved and to terrorize entire generations of African-Americans in this country. And everybody wants to say, oh, it was about states' rights. It wasn't about states' rights, okay? The Civil War was not about the right of the state of South Carolina to determine where its highways go. No, it was about the right of the state of South Carolina to enslave people. So I, you know, whenever somebody tries to tell you that it was about slaves, you know, states' rights, just look at them for what they are. They're racists. It wasn't about states' rights. It was about slavery. Plain and simple. The United States of America elected a president who was an abolitionist and the southern slaveholding states decided to leave. And then they decided to start a war with us when they left. So we, we're going to have statues and name military bases against... Uh, and by the way, not only did these people kill more Americans than anybody else, they were also failures. They lost the war. They lost miserably in some cases. Most of these guys were embarrassments. So let's name a base after them. Why not? I mean, that would have been the easiest thing for this guy to do, right? Would have been cheap grace, as they say. I've learned in politics my entire life, if it's an easy lift, take it. And this is an easy lift. It's the easiest of easy lifts. And he didn't take it because he, like, again, he doesn't think it's an easy lift because he wants the Dylan Roofs of the world who are just waiting, lying in wait to vote for him. He doesn't care. He didn't speak ill of David Duke when David Duke endorsed him because he thought he could use those votes. David Duke must have people who like him. If David Duke likes me and those people like David Duke and they decide to vote for me, then I'm okay with it. That's how Trump thinks. Now he's having a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was supposed to be on Juneteenth, which is the day that the Emancipation Proclamation finally was enforced in the state of Texas, thus ending slavery in the United States of America. Two years after President Lincoln declared it, by the way. 
Tulsa, Oklahoma, the site of one of the worst acts of terror against African-Americans after slavery in this country, destroying African-American wealth. Tulsa, Oklahoma was like the Black Wall Street, they called it. Oh, let's do it there. I mean, don't even get me started on the fact that this guy is so starved for attention, so in need for public you know, adoration, that he's going to invite 19,000 people who you know, love him to be inside, packed together in an arena, chanting, by the way, which they often do there, risking their lives with COVID-19 just so he could feel a little bit better about himself. That's what's going on in this country right now. We got a president of the United States that doesn't even understand that he could just, you know, put a little palm, you know, olive branch out there to the people marching in the streets day after day after day now. We're almost three weeks into this. And the president could have, you know, put an olive branch out. We're going to get rid of those Confederate statues in Washington, D.C. We're going to get rid of the Confederate names on bases. And it would have been a symbolic victory for him that would have went a long way. Couldn't even do it. Meanwhile, cops are gunning down African-Americans still. And people want to know why people are still marching. Why are they still marching? It's been three weeks. Why aren't you marching? I mean, I you know I get it if you're afraid of COVID-19. That's the only excuse you have. I went. I went to a New York City rally. I stayed on the edges of it because I am worried about bringing COVID-19 home or bringing it to my family. Not really worried about myself getting it. But it is amazing to me that he's doing as well as he's doing. I mean, now there was a poll that came out today from a Canadian polling company that had him at 36%. 36% approval in that poll. Losing to Joe Biden by 14 points. Um, There are lots of polls out there that have him losing to Joe Biden poorly, badly. Now, look, I know that this race is a long way from being over. I know it's going to narrow. It's going to go up and down. But I'll, I'll enjoy it while it lasts. I mean, I'm surprised. It's I'm look. Thirty six percent seems high to me. COVID nineteen, a country basically in chaos, massive unemployment, and just inept leadership by the president of the United States. Just completely inept. But I'm really glad I I got to talk to Torre. I've been trying to get him on for a while, and this was the perfect time. Um. It was uh, a good interview. He dropped the F-bomb while I was on live radio, but I don't think I have that in the podcast either. I think I have the edited version in the podcast, unfortunately. I thought I was going to have the full uh, raw emotion. I mean, you could feel it talking to him. And by the way, if you haven't seen Dave Chappelle's take on this, it's on Netflix. It's called 846, which is the amount of time that cop kneeled on George Floyd's neck. And that that moved me to tears. You know, talking to Torre, I felt his pain. You know, Dave Chappelle is somebody who you might have heard me talk about before, one of my favorite comedians. I, I really, I really love Dave Chappelle. I mean, he's brought me a lot of joy. Um, my, you know, last 10 years, I guess, 15 years he's been on this, probably more, 20 years almost now. I mean, I remember his early stand-up specials before the Chappelle show, which was, you know, brilliant. But watching a guy who has always made you smile, has always made you laugh, has always delivered the goods, get up there and talk about this issue personally from the heart. 
I mean, it's powerful. So if you're a Chappelle fan, uh, I highly encourage you. It's called 846. It's uh, Netflix taped it, but they released it for free on YouTube. It is not a comedy special. He cracks a few jokes in there, but it, that's not what it's about. And I highly encourage you, if you're a fan, even if you're not a fan, go check that out. Um, it's powerful. It's raw. So, you know, if bad language bothers you, then, you know, I don't know what to tell you. You probably shouldn't listen to me. <laughs> uh, I don't want to lose listeners. And thank you for listening. Last week was my best week ever. You are clearly telling people to listen to this podcast. Keep doing it. Please tweet at me at Christopher Hahn and please retweet the podcast. I know I'm making a shameless plug in the middle of this. But here we are, right? We're, we're at this moment in, in this country that is amazing to see. I am both excited and hopeful that there is real positive change possible right now. And I am terrified that it may not come. And the alternative is really bad for a republic. I mean, I don't know that our republic survives four more years of Donald Trump. Um, but I am excited. I, you've heard me talk. I think he's done. I think we got to work really hard. I don't think we can let our guard down, but I don't see how he gets reelected. I mean, when, you know, he's two points ahead in the state of Arkansas, he's got a problem. I mean, he might be going to Oklahoma for all I know because he thinks it's tight there. I, I mean, I doubt it. I mean, if Oklahoma's in play, then we've got Arizona, right? We've got Wisconsin. We've got Michigan and Pennsylvania and Florida. I mean, if you've got a campaign in Oklahoma, you probably shouldn't be running as a Republican, right? They should be looking for another candidate. If going to Oklahoma to have a campaign rally is something they feel is necessary at this point in time in this president's campaign. What is going to be great is when he ditches Mike Pence. And I look, he's not going to blame himself for the failure to be ahead in the polls in August. He's not going to blame himself for that. He's going to blame Mike Pence. He's going to shake things up. He's going to fire his campaign staff. He's going to fire his VP. He's going to be letting loose on everybody. You watch. Campaign will be run by Jared Kushner or Lara Trump. You know, somebody close to the family. Somebody doesn't have to pay. Not that he's worried about money. They're raking it in on that campaign. So is Biden, by the way, raised over $80 million in May. That's pretty good. Pretty spectacular. That's enough, by the way. You know, Biden's going to have enough money to be competitive. And don't be shocked. I am confident that Trump's going to have double of what Biden has. But... You know, billion dollars is good, right? You're gonna I think Biden between Biden and, and all of the super PACs, they're gonna spend about a billion dollars. That's enough. That's enough to win. Trump could spend two billion and let's be clear, at least half of every dollar Donald Trump's uh raises is going to pay somebody off so they don't talk about Donald Trump. You could just assume that. And I'm not even talking about mistresses. And other people he's wronged in his life. I'm talking about people who used to work for him who are on that campaign payroll still. I mean, you could just be assuming that a very large chunk of money 
is going to keep those people employed with the Trump organization and being happy with the family. So, you know, maybe Biden's billion and Trump's billions equal in that regard. Who knows? I mean, it's probably not a billion that he's doing payoffs, but you never know. So it is it is one of those weeks where the news is again horrible but there is a sense of hope that people have had enough and that they're going to vote for real change this year not just by electing Joe Biden but but by electing a progressive house and senate and you know, even the news we got on Monday about the Supreme Court making it illegal to discriminate in the workplace against gay and transsexual Americans, that's beautiful. It was a six to three vote. Who would have thought Neil Gorsuch would have voted for that? See, people surprise you. I'm willing to be surprised. I'm willing to be lucky. I mean, I still would have rather had, you know, a Democrat in that seat. And I don't think that President Obama, you know, Merrick Garland should be that judge. And we'd be better off for it as a nation, but I'm happy that at least that ruling, which is so clear to me, shouldn't even be an issue, that you can no longer discriminate uh, based on people's sexual orientation or gender, uh, even if that gender is trans. So congratulations. Happy Pride. It's Pride Month. So uh, no better time for that news to come down, I guess. All right, so I'm going to take a little bit of a break here, and then I've got a great interview with Torre. It's from my radio show. It's three parts, so there might be some rough edits in there, so bear with me, America. Um, Be right back. I've got a great guest. I've been trying to get him on the show for a while. He is, uh, look, he's been part of uh, politics and pop culture for many years now fellow Gen Xer. You've seen him on MSNBC. You've seen him on CNN. You've seen him all over the place. You read his books. Torre, how are you? Welcome to the Chris Hahn Show. Good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I, I'm really excited to be talking to you, especially right now, given what's going on. You've written books uh, that I have read on race that have really given me some focus on the way people actually interact racially in this country. And I'm I'm really just I want to open up the floor to you and just get your take on the national moment we're in right now, uh, mourning the death of George Floyd and the protests that have sustained themselves for two weeks. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I feel myself to be really angry and sensitive and raw and overwhelmed by, you know, what's happened in the news and what's happening in the streets and where people have taken it. Um, You know, I think the country is in a sort of crisis moment in terms of how we all feel about all these sort of things that happen. Um, You know, I think we are having a national conversation about policing in a more serious and intense way than we've ever had. And, you know, it's interesting. There's some really serious, uh, aggressive positions being taken. Um, I know from myself, even about a week ago, as I was really starting to wade into the information, um, I was still of the mindset that we could reform the police, that we could sort of 
give them new rules, give them a new contract for, of behavior, what we wanted from them, and make a difference. And the more I have read and the more I've thought, the more I've heard from folks who are further to the left of where I was, um, in terms of believing in abolition, I've been like, that is really the only thing that makes sense. So what do, you, is, what do you replace you know, we'll, it with, though? That's the well, question. We can, well, well, we can get to that. Yeah. But that has to be, this, and I can answer that question, but that has to be the secondary question. Because right. the first question is the current status quo is unsustainable and unacceptable. Right. Right. I, I feel like I live in a world of chaos where I am afraid of the police every single day. Mm. Is that's not acceptable. No, it's I mean, not we both, acceptable. We we would both agree that another George Floyd situation is inevitable. It's it happened. Happen. I would bet it hap- has happened since this has started, to be honest with you. Not just, yeah. I mean, the police kill 1,100 people a year. So there, at least one person, more than one person dies every day from the police. But I don't even just mean like a police murder, but one that becomes a big story that is traumatizing to millions of Americans, right? right? Because there's lots of murders, and then there's some we hear about, like Breonna Taylor, and then there's some that we see, like George Floyd, that become a bigger thing. Right. So the the current situation is not providing us any safety. The police are very bad at stopping murder, at stopping rape, at stopping domestic violence from happening. They're pretty bad at uh, they're better, kind of, at preventing uh, theft. Better, but generally the police show up after something has happened. And, you know, the murder clearance rate is pretty low in most major cities. Right. So we're sending men and women, but mostly men, the police force is mostly men, yep. with guns. Many of those men are white supremacists. That's from the FBI. Uh, they have total authority no responsibility, almost no transparency. There's very little way of, of, of punishing them if they do bad things. They make mistakes all the time. They lie all the time. Mm. And they have guns. Yeah. Why, 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 why do we... And they're very bad at preventing... You know, people are like, well, how are we going to stop violent crime? The police are very... I mean, they'll tell you, they are very bad at stopping murder. How you know, you know, and we have quite often uh, an offensive force that is stalking uh, generally law-abiding citizens as we drive around the streets, looking for us to have made very small mistakes. Right, right. Driving a little bit over the speed limit, right. Running a red light by a couple of seconds, going through a stop sign, partly because there's this ridiculous broken windows philosophy that says if somebody commits a small crime, they might be a mass murderer. Mm. So consider them a mass murderer until they have proven they're not, which is part of why cops are pulling you over by the side of the road and walking up to your car scared as hell. Um, Yeah. But also, but also, uh, you know, they are trying to make money, right? All these citations and the arrests that happen. Uh, lead to money for the department, right. right? They are trying to suck us dry as citizenry, raking more money. But also, they make money for the officers. Every citation that they make means the officer must go to court. If an officer goes to court, he is an overtime. Yeah. And I spoke to a police officer yesterday. The first three hours that you are in court is billed as three hours. So if you spend 
five minutes in court, that's three hours of overtime. Wow. Two hours in court, that's three hours of overtime. Now, if you spend, now after three hours, it's one for one. So if you spend four hours uh, in court, that's four hours. Of I, I will tell you, it's different in different jurisdictions. I negotiated a police contract once, and they were getting eight hours for one hour in court. So, well, well, there you go. Yeah. Well, there you go. So they are, and, and not only that, they are incentivized by quotas. They're not told, you must make 20 arrests. But if Chris is making 20 arrests and 30 citations a month, and Jill is making 19 and, you know, 25, you got to be in the ballpark or you are getting humiliated, perhaps devoted, and you're certainly not able to move up, right, in the department and get promoted. Um, so, you know, so there's, there's significant problems with the way we have things going on. And all these traffic stops, which are highly unlikely to be, you know, violent criminals, we, we got people with guns. Yeah. Like, we don't need people with guns to show up to a domestic violence problem, to somebody was five miles over the speed limit, to, you know, somebody is jaywalking, you know, somebody's disturbing the peace over here, a party is too loud. We don't need to set now, okay, so a post police world. I've been thinking a lot about this and there's there's multiple sides uh, to what must happen. I I would envision a far different looking police force that is much more regimented right when you walk into the hospital you know there's a surgeon who will do a very specific part of your body right right there's you know there's people who do general practice but when you have you know when you go beyond the level of like i'm a little sick they get very specified but the police are crime generalists who will go from a murder to a deep call to a traffic stop right? right and usually not doing much of them very well if we had people who were specialized. I do domestic violence calls. That's all I do. I don't have a gun. I'm basically a high-end psychiatrist social worker, and I show up on a domestic violence call and try to de-escalate, figure out what's going on, figure out how to make things better for that family. I show up at car crashes. I am worthless on a murder scene, but on a car crash, I'm great. Right. right. You know, I show up after a murder. I don't have a gun. I don't need a gun. The murder's already happened. The cr- now, right. is there a very, very small group, let's say a SWAT type unit that has the gun that is like, okay, you know, we have, a, you know, a homicidal gang yeah. over here that we need to deal with. We have an active shooter situation over here that we need to deal with right now. And they're on call to deal with that. That is an extraordinary all right, hold that well, thought. Hold, hold that thought, because this is good stuff. I told you this was going to go by quick. I'll be right back with Torre. All right, no break for you. Here's part two of my interview with Torre. Torre, we were talking about a post-police world, and you were starting to suggest that rather than have these law enforcement generalists, we have these public safety specialists. And I want to continue down that path and, and and maybe talk about, you know, why that argument is somehow getting a little complicated for Americans to kind of comprehend. Well, I mean, you know, I want to finish laying out this vision because there's other parts of it that have to happen to make it work. But, well, yeah, it's complicated because we have been trained to think that we must have the police in order to have public safety when, in fact, the police really do not provide much in the way of public safety, and the police themselves are not only the cause of a lot of violence, but they are also uh, criminogenic. They cause crime, you know, not just the murder, 
talking about in this conversation, national conversation, but also the people who are arrested and then go to prison and then they have a felony or misdemeanor. And not only are they traumatized, but then they have a harder time getting a job. Right. So then they are kind of stuck in the underground economy. So we have to drastically reduce the number of people who are going to jail uh, or prison for any length of time, right? Reduce the number and reduce the length of time because prison itself is criminogenic. Uh, we have to ban the box and do other things that allow people who've had that moment in their life where they get arrested, if they get arrested, um, to be able to return to the workforce rather than be forced into the underground workforce, right? right, right in the underground economy. Um, you know, you need to do um, things, I mean, you know, I would do things like, you know, you, you could have cameras that are covering uh, traffic stops. You could have... Uh, more sort of, uh, I mean, you need to end the war on drugs. You need to legalize drugs, especially marijuana. But I would legalize all drugs. You will be penalized for things that you do when you are doing drugs, right? Like if you if you should beat somebody up, then you know you have to pay the price for that. But doing drugs itself, possessing and trafficking drugs itself, should not be illegal. Right. And the only way. When the, the, you know, the drug market, the underground drug market, is the source of a lot of crime, and the only way to actually crush that market is to create a legal market. If they had to compete with a legal market, then the then it, then it wouldn't make sense. It's like that old Vegas. It's, it's like that old Vegas saying. You know, the mob was winning Vegas until the corporations came to town and drove them out. Well, I mean, you and I are not old enough to remember that there was a time when alcohol was illegal in this country. Right. right. And, you know, I think that was, you know, my grandparents, your great-grandparents. Right. right. And uh, there was a the prohibition. Uh, alcohol was illegal. Uh, then they made alcohol legal again. There is no illegal alcohol market to speak of. You might be able to buy moonshine from, you know, Jib down the street at a couple places right. in North Carolina. A couple guys homebrewing. It's not very good. Yeah, but I mean, it's, but there's no, there was, and it was crushed by, uh, you know, this other, the, the, by a legal market. So, I mean, like, so I'm talking about eliminating crime, making it easier for people to return to uh, the above ground market if something happens to them, and less police in their lives. I mean, we have the police as an offensive in many cases, right. sort of out looking for us and looking for crime and assuming that we are evil people and not just black people in our communities, but, you know, like people driving down the street, they're like sitting there like prowling. Like, I mean, like, is it a deterrent? It, no, right? You drive down the highway, you see a cop car, you slow down for what, five, ten minutes? And right. You're back to your normal speed. Right, whatever you know, I, you know, I'm usually driving like 70, 75 miles an hour. Right, you know, I try to see a cop, but then I slow down. They, you know, they're not a deterrent. Um, so, you know, I, I, this is, however, my position. Right, this is the position of people who, and are it's a, and and you know, it, admittedly, it's an extreme position. 
Um, you know, there are others that have the eight can't wait campaign where there are eight reforms to reduce police violence that that every city should. I, I would I would think that thinking that the police are going to reform themselves is extreme. Well, they right? won't. They're going to have to have those reforms foisted upon them. They're I, Look, I'm a big believer and in you, accountability. And you, and you think that they are going to uh, abide by those things? You think that we can trust the police to follow well, look, one of those reforms is having outside authorities overseeing the police, a civilian review board uh, that is not part of the district attorney's office. That is, a you know, appointed by public officials or even elected at large. Um, How do we know what the cops are doing unless it's videotaped by a citizen? True. I mean, that's, you know, that's why you, you have body cams, you have other things to try to monitor behavior, GPS on cops at all times. Body cameras don't, a lot of data showing body cameras don't do much to change police behavior. Well, the reason why body cameras don't change police behavior is there's no accountability for when they get caught doing something wrong, right? Like this guy, Derek Chauvin, knew he was being videotaped, didn't care because he's gotten away with it a million times, 18 times. Yeah, and that's not, right, and that's not even his own camera watching those cameras right right even if they're you know they can turn them off with impunity uh but who's watching the cameras if they're on and you really think that you know the police are not interested in policing themselves right right and we've seen this past week or two um a very loud and nasty uh but i mean you know we can uh uh you know they don't want to be critiqued Right. And the notion of expecting them to reform themselves in some way because we told them you can't do this or that, like that seems to me to be crazy. Right. Um, you know, th- th- we will see, we already you and I already agreed we're going to see another George Floyd. Yeah. So the question becomes, how many more George Floyds are you, Chris, or any individual listener, how many more are you willing to take? I'm not willing to take any more. I was, I've been done for a long time. But you remain, you're not ready to abolish the police. Well. So you're ready to accept this happening. You know what it is? I've been in politics so long. I want to do something I can get done. Right? Like, what can I get done? That's always, you you know, I I don't think abolishing the police is politically palatable to enough Americans, even black Americans, to actually get done. So I'm suggesting that. That's a very steep hill to climb, and uh, and you're trying to convince me it's not. I mean, look, I do understand that most Americans are not close to ready to uh, to go down that road. What I would say, the two things I would say is that you know, how many more George Floyd incidents are required for you, Chris, and you, individual listener? To say, you know what, the police, this is too much. Is it one more? Is it 10 more? Is it 100 more? Because whatever number that is, we will write that number. And I will already be here at this position of like, we need to abolish the police and have an entirely new public safety system. And you're not ready. But after like five more of these, you might be like, you know what? We can't keep going down this road because they don't, the cops don't listen. Now, the other point of it for me is that the thesis of this conversation around policing for me is stop killing us. 
Yeah. Right? We have a major government agency that is killing 1,100 people a year, most of them black and brown. Right. Um, I'm not going to temper my demand to stop killing my people with, well, how will it poll with Midwestern suburban soccer moms? Mm. What can I get white people who are not already on board to believe they'll accept defund, they'll accept slight reform, which means kill us a little bit less. How how but, how am I saying that? But what you're suggesting, though, in your plan to replace them is still a public safety force. It is still something like police, but completely different, if you get what I'm saying. I mean, sure. I, I don't necessarily envision a world where there is no human being who is uh, dealing with any sort of law enforcement. Right. Right. There's, you know, I mean, like we have a military, they're not supposed to do, you know, they're not supposed to interact with American citizens. No, right? but like we up have, until last week anyway. Right. 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 I mean, they can support the police, but they don't actually, you know, but I mean, you know, he, we can shrink the size and the scope and the power of the police to something far smaller where we get actual public safety and where I don't walk around scared as hell all right. the time that right. they're going to kill me. Um, I mean, you know, one thing, you know, like the FBI says that we have uh, white supremacists infiltrating American police departments, and we don't know how many because they're not like all like right. registered. They're not out. They're not out, and they're not wearing white hoods to to work. Right. So right. we have no idea how many white supremacists there are in the American policing industry. That should scare the hell out of you. Scares me. It scares the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I mean, like I read this amazing uh, essay on medium from a cop called confessions of a former bastard cop hmm. right you can you can google confessions of a former bastard cop which goes through in detail policing and is like you know we we don't do a good job of protecting you i mean like it's a lot of the 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 propaganda around policing that has led you to think that it is cops that are keeping the barbarians at the gate right. and keeping you protected from the purge. Oh, and I, if we eliminate I, the men with guns, like we will no longer have the purge. We won't have like that's insane. Yeah, that's yeah. not true. Yeah, I mean I, I don't I'm not saying I believe it. I'm just saying what can I get done? What I think I could get eight can't wait done. I don't know if I can get complete defunding and restructuring of everything in the police department. I think we can get some restructuring for sure. I didn't think that uh, it was possible until Minneapolis did it. Right. You know, and you and I are old enough to remember at least three off the top of my head seismic political shifts mm. like gay marriage, yep. where there was a time we thought that's impossible. Now it's national, like uh, marijuana legalization, mm. right? We, uh, Ten years ago, I've been like, no way, not in America. Like, it's almost done. Right. Um, you know, the, the end of apartheid, right? I mean, you know, the, the, the freeing of Mandela. I mean, like, 
we marched around and apartheid not thinking Mandela was actually free. It was just a slogan. Right. You know. Something for us uh, to do on the weekends. You know, and it, I mean, like, we have seen these major shifts. But again, you know, I understand the political point, but we're like, uh, you know, okay, Torre, I know that you're, like, traumatized uh, by a, yet another million public right. execution of your people, but can we try slight reform one more time? And I'm <laughs> you're like, make, look, man, you're making a point. You're making an excellent point. And, know, and, I'm, and I'm just not willing to go there. No, I'm not saying I'm not willing to go there. I look. No, I'm not willing to go. I'm not willing to go there. Yeah. I think that we have to do everything we can to make it make it so uh, people of color do not have to be afraid when they leave their house. Do not have to be afraid when, look, I've gotten pulled over. I get pulled over all the time. I don't care. I, 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 I tell the story about last week. I was running on a track I wasn't supposed to be on. The gate was open. I went in. It was adjacent to some hospitals they just built here on Long Island. And the National Guard took me off the track. And they were apologizing to me as they were asking me to leave the track. Apologizing. I was in the wrong, and they're apologizing to me. That probably wouldn't have happened to me, you know, if I was a Mad Ombre running. And I was thinking about that. Uh, and it, it's, you know, I get it. You have a much different experience with the police than I do. And, right. and we do need to make sure that your experience with the police or whatever law enforcement or public safety comes next is the same as mine. And that is my goal. Uh, and that should be all of our goals, I think. Yeah. We're yeah, we're not even close to that, and you know it's exciting to see Americans, more Americans, care about these issues now than ever before. Yeah, but uh, you know, there's there's a long way to go. Long way to go. All right, look, I only have thirty seconds left with you, and I want to make sure I plug everything you're doing because people need to follow Torre on Twitter at Torre. I follow him. I'll tweet him out. Um, um, you've got a. a a podcast called The Torre Show. You've got another podcast about politics. I didn't even get to talk to you about politics tonight, which I wanted to do. Democracy-ish uh, is my podcast about politics. And and I encourage you to read his books. There are too many to list in the 10 seconds I have less, left. I think my favorite is Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness? I think I'm getting the title right. Yep. Uh, and I highly encourage you to read it. Torre, what a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. That's Torre, and if you're not following him on Twitter, you need to do it right now, at Torre on Twitter. I'll be right back to wrap it up. Interesting stuff. I hope you listened to that entire interview, Torre. Um, look, I mean, I get what he's saying, and I think most people agree with almost all of the components that are being outlined by the protesters and by others. Somebody asked AOC um, on one of the shows what it looks like in uh, a defund the police world. She says it looks like a suburb where you actually have social services and you actually have things other than the police. Now, I know having been the chief deputy county executive of one of the largest suburban counties in America, if not the largest suburban county in America, that a lot of the budget still goes to police and we're coming into tough economic times and counties are going to have to make choices. And you're going to have to ask the question, do we need 
all of this excess armament on the street? Or what happens if we get rid of certain social services that are providing stability in the community? Does that make crime worse? What is more important, a deterrent or having the ability for people to feel secure that they are not going to be homeless or hungry? Um, I don't know. I think that I think that it's quite frankly people who are working and people who um, are not worried about where they're going to get their next meal or whether or not they're going to have a roof under, over their head are less likely to commit crime. I think people who are uh, in a situation where they feel there's a future and feel that there's promise and there's hope are less likely to commit crimes. So maybe for the last hundred years in this country, we've spent a lot of money on public safety and, and quite frankly, the military. And we haven't paid enough attention to quality of life for everybody, especially in, in big cities. And I think that we have to have a tough conversation about that. And again, I, I have not signed on to the language of defund the police. I think that that just confuses too many people. But I, I agree with almost everything Torre was pushing for here. And I, you know, I don't have the same experiences he has with the police. I've never felt uncomfortable or threatened in any situation with the police. So I can't even imagine the pain. And that's why watching that Dave Chappelle thing, I know I mentioned it earlier, is it's so... And having conversations. I have, look, I have, um, I have two nephews who are black and I worry about them I know my sister does for sure um, it is a it must be a difficult thing for parents particularly of African American men and I think we all need to be thinking about how they feel in this situation and what can we do to make things better and I don't think it needs to be I don't think that people need to have any kind of visceral reaction to it. There needs to be some sort of restructuring here. Clearly, things have been going on uh, in this country that many Americans are completely unaware of. And the George Floyd thing just threw it right in your face. And I think the fact that there were three other officers standing around drew the attention to all Americans that this is a problem. It is not just a couple people. people there's, just, there's just a problem that needs to be fixed. And I believe the most important thing you could do is have accountability. Total and complete accountability. Liability too. You know, this qualified immunity conversation we're having. You know, I think that there needs to be a piercing of that veil under certain circumstances, particularly if a police officer is uh, involved in a death or a serious injury. We have to figure this out. It's going to be a difficult conversation. But I have hope. I have a lot of hope. Because there are a lot of people talking about this that otherwise wouldn't be talking about this. There are a lot of people marching in the street that uh, that otherwise wouldn't be marching in the street. It's I, If you've gone to one of these rallies, and I have, they are a diverse group of people. All, all ages, all colors, all races, all sexes. It is amazing to me. 
It is not a homogeneous group. It is a wide variety of people from all walks of life. I'm sure there are people from all over the economic spectrum too. They they see what's going on and they want change. And I don't I said this before. I I, I don't think this is gonna be a summer where we don't have protests going on pretty much all summer. And then we're going to get into the fall, into the political silly season, and it's only going to get worse. And I don't know what this maniac in the White House is going to do. Um, so buckle up. I know I say that every week, but buckle up. Get ready for the long slog to November. And get ready to try to change this country, baby. Change it back for the, not change it back. Move it forward for the better. Let's put this behind us. Let's put this Trump era behind us. And let's see if we could bring real justice and equality to everybody in this country. And I think we all can agree that everybody in this country is entitled to justice and equality. And there hasn't been that for so many. Hopefully your eyes are open to that now. I know if you're listening to the show, you probably are. And again, thanks for listening. And I want to remind you, as always, to seek the truth. Question everyone and everything, America, even me. Seek the truth. I know it's out there, and I know you'll find it if you look for it. And I'll be back here again next week to tell you the truth as I see it. I'm Chris Hahn. Thanks for listening to the Aggressive Progressive Podcast.